Good morning. Anybody looking for a preacher? I thought we had one more verse there. That's what I thought I had time. It's good to see you this morning. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting, we are especially thankful for your presence and uh, echo my welcome and hope you will allow us to get to know you just a little bit better. We, we love visitors and we just appreciate your being with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you'd be turning to the book of Exodus chapter 3 and into chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. Of course, that means we'll be all over the Bible. In fact, almost as soon as you turn there, you might turn to Psalm 135 and hold on because we'll soon be there as well. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about, and we, these series of sermons, uh, we're going to be talking about the church. Uh, but as was said uh, by, by, by our brother Charles, is that the, it's the church of the Bible. And so we're, really, we're looking at God's work throughout Scripture to bring about the glorious institution that is the bride of Christ, the church of our Lord. Uh, there's great benefit for us to do that. It helps us to know who we are and whose we are and what we are doing as a result of that blessing. Remember the problem was sin, Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6. Also, please remember Christ or God promised the seed, Genesis 3, 15. And those promises were given to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and that is a land, a nation, and a seed. You'll also remember as you work your way through the book of Genesis that those promises were repeated to Isaac, Abraham's son, as well as Jacob, Isaac's son. And as God worked through that, you'll remember Joseph. This is really Genesis 37 to 50. And at the end of his life, his father now dead, his brothers concerned about his retribution. He says to them, I'm, I'm not in the place of God. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we learn from the rest of that chapter that Joseph had in mind those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, with regards to the church, you and I, as we walk through the Bible, we should appreciate the Old Testament people of Israel are God's people. And then the New Testament church we read about in the book of Acts, those are God's people. In fact, that church is called Israel. It's called God's Israel, Galatians 6.16. And so these are God's people. You and I project that out to us today. Being God's people, there are great things we can learn from all of Scripture relative to who we are. How did we get to Abraham? We talked about that as well. You remember that we left the ark, Genesis 9, and man dispersed over the world again. And unfortunately, he went back into sin. And so we have those genealogies from Genesis 11, from Shem down to Nahor, Terah, rather, Nahor, Abram. And that's how we got there. The world gave itself to sin. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 18, really to the end of that chapter. But he says that they knew God. They did not glorify him as God, and they gave God up, exchanged him for incorruptible, for mortal, corruptible beasts and animals and man, and they gave up God, and God gave them up. And so man in sin is in this state hopeless. Abraham's father was in idolatry. We learned that from Joshua 24 in the first three chapters, and that's how the promises came to Abraham. The nations gave up God, and now God would have his own nation. He called Abraham to form his nation. And when we arrive in the book of Exodus, this is where we are. God has now been mindful of his people. And while the world has given themselves to idolatry, God is going to deliver his people and demonstrate two things, that he is not like any other God, and therefore his people won't be like any other people. And we come into that in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. And so let's begin really in Psalm 135 and see that that's exactly what God was doing. And the psalmist talks about it. He talks about the history to some degree and what God did, and this was part of it, to demonstrate that God is not like any other God. The psalmist begins in Psalm 135, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the Lord of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob 
for himself. And it's really from here, verse 4 down to about verse number 14, you're really going to begin to see the emphasis on God having life, God being alive, having power, having might, having a will and a desire and intentions, and God delivering his people. Notice verse number four. He says, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, for our, uh, his Israel, for his own possessions. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord, our God, is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, unto Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And all the kingdoms of, the, of Canaan, he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. Now, if you'll just pause there long enough to, to go back in your mind and play all of that activity of God, his calling, his choosing, his deliverance, his might, his wonders, his signs, all of those things. Now, by way of contrast, note what the psalmist says next. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. And then he completes the psalm with reference again to Israel and trusting and praising the Lord. Now, with that in mind, that's kind of where we are back here in Exodus chapter 3. We're right at the beginning of the nations having given up God, and now God is about to distinguish himself from all of the gods of the heathens. He does that by delivering his people. If you have your Bibles and you're back there in Exodus chapter 2, notice the end of that chapter, and notice immediately the interaction of God and all of those things that the psalmist says, his mind, his will, his activity. Beginning in verse 23, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help, they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Remember what it said about the idols, gods. They have ears, but they don't hear. Not this God. Their cries cried out up to the ears of God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. That's what led us into Moses at the bush that was burning and not consumed. It's God's care that led to that conversation. And God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And after God has this conversation with Moses, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Notice immediately what God says next. Begin with me in verse number 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Don't you want to serve this God, the one who sees, the one who hears, the one who is aware, and the one who will deliver? Beginning in verse number 8, he says, So I have come down to deliver them 
from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel have come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppressions with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God would make himself known to the world. In fact, the rest of this chapter is kind of indicative of how God would do that. He announced it to Moses, but then he wanted Moses to carry this message to his people. Notice verse number 16 of chapter 3. To Moses, he says, go and gather the elders of Israel. Go and gather them together and say unto them, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, hath appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and have seen what is done to you in Egypt. Verse 17, he says, and I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land. And then he repeats, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. God told Moses, and then God told Moses, you go tell the elders. Go gather them and tell them. But more than that, Israel needed to know that God was greater than Pharaoh. And so verse 18, he says, they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And you shall say unto him, Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, hath met with us now. Let us go, that we may pray thee three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Jehovah our God. Israel also needed to know that God knew how this was all going to work out. Notice verses 19 and 20. Their God, this God, knows the future. Verse number 19, God says, And I know that the king of Egypt will not give you leave to go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will put forth my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. You know what their God knows? Their God knows the future. Israel needed to know that too. There's an important thing for us to remember that sometimes, because God speaks of the future as if it were the past, we can get confused in the present. You see, God said, he's going to let you go. Now, he's not going to let you go, and then he will let you go. Now, that's what God said. What effect did that have on Moses and Israel? Well, they do go in, and he does not let them go. And you know what? Israel gets confused. God's not confused. He said, it will work out just the way I'm saying it's going to work out. There is another important thought, and that is this. Pharaoh's rebellion would further God's cause. Israel needed to know that God was in control. Notice verse 21 and 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass, that when ye go, ye shall not go out empty. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of her Sir Jonathan and her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall despoil the Egyptians. Let me ask you a question. How did people who were in bondage get enough gold to build the tabernacle and get so much gold, so much possessions, but Moses said, it's enough. You've brought too much. That's exactly what he says in Exodus 36 in verse 3, beginning, they received of Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary. 
wherewith to make it, and they brought yet into it him freewill offerings every morning. And all the wise men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came, every man from his work which they wrought. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which Jehovah commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. How did people who were in bondage get all of that stuff? Sometimes saying no is God's plan. Pharaoh saying no was the plan. And God said, he won't let you go, but I will bring my signs. Then he'll let you go. And oh, by the way, before he lets you go, they're going to give you so much goods. You'll have too much. God's people needed to know their God was not like any other God. The second thing that God does is he equips Moses for the task at hand. Moses has concerns, and he would need confirmation and proof for the work, and God would provide it. God answers every concern that Moses has, beginning in chapter 3 and verse number 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? As you work through this chapter, please appreciate the fact that Moses and God are starting a relationship. And so Moses' concerns are legitimate, and therefore God answers and provides every one of them. To, God, to Moses' concern of who am I, verse number 12 is God's response. He says, certainly, I will be with you. That's the response. It's interesting. He doesn't spend a lot of time telling Moses how great he is. He doesn't tell Moses, you can do it. He doesn't tell Moses, don't worry about what you think about you. No, what he tells Moses is, I'm with you. And if I'm with you, then Moses, this is going to be all right. In fact, Verse number 12, God sees success through Moses' concern. Note what the verse says. He says, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll note that God says, when you have. When, not if. Not if you're able to, Moses. He says, no, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship at this mountain. Moses starts with a concern. Who am I? God sees success. This is going to be fine. I'm going to be with you. And when we do it, you'll be right back here worshiping at this mountain. That didn't stop Moses' concern, though, because Moses had a second concern, and that is, who are you? Down in verse number 13, that's what Moses asked effectively. Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and now they will say to me, what's his name? What shall I say? How come Moses doesn't know? Because that's the way revelation works. Please don't gift Moses more knowledge than he could have at this time. Revelation unfolds a little bit at a time, and therefore you can only know as much as has been revealed to you or what's behind you. But you can't know what you haven't been heard or hasn't been revealed. You can't know that. And so Moses is at the very beginning of his relationship with God, and so he doesn't know God's name. Who are you? What should I tell him? And so God answers. God says, I am who I am. You tell him that. I am that I am has sent you. Coincidentally, if you would drive a peg right there for just a moment and then jettison over to the New Testament and you can see how they're connected, Jesus would use that very language to teach the resurrection of the dead. If you have your Bibles, look at Matthew 22 
hear a discussion that Jesus has with the Sadducees, who are sad, you see, <laughs> because they don't believe in the resurrection. You never know if they're going to work or not, and so you wait. Matthew 22, they come to Jesus. These are individuals who don't believe in the resurrection, Acts 23, 19. Acts 23, 9 or 19, check me on that. Verse number 23, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, that's what they say, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children and brother has next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother, so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also in the resurrection, therefore. Now, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, and so they say, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. They believe they have Jesus. We got him. He won't be able to answer this. There is no resurrection. That's what they believe. And why are we going to prove that? There are seven husbands. Which one is hers? Jesus' response to that is, you do err or you are mistaken. Two things, he says, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection, here's the Lord's proof. What's his proof? He says, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's the Lord's point? The tense Jesus says God met Moses at the bush, and he didn't introduce himself in the past tense. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't introduce himself in the future tense by saying, I will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said when he met Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord's point is, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And since I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am the God of the living, that means and can only mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is alive even though they're dead. You'll find similar language to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 2. This time it won't concern Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It'll actually concern Moses. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 2, God will say to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. And over in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, you will read these words. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took with him Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment became white and dazzling. And behold, there talked with him two men who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead, and Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus in glory to talk about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I am sent you. You tell them that. Jesus would use that language, the I am, to prove his divine nature. The same one who said, I am, Jesus says, that's who I am. John chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, my father worked hitherto and I work. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but they, they heard him say God was his father making himself equal with God. John 10, 30 and 31, I and my father are one and in a heated discussion in John chapter 8 with the Jews, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus would say, I am, as an indication that he is God in the flesh. 
You tell them, Moses, I am sent you. Moses had yet another concern, Exodus chapter 4. Moses says, on this occasion, they will not believe me, chapter 4 in verse number 1. They won't believe me, and they will say to me, I will say to them, the Lord hath appeared unto me. Then the, they, said to, they will say to me, he did not appear to you. And Moses says, if I go down there and I tell them, they won't believe me. You know, on the one hand, Moses has a very legitimate concern. Why would they believe that? Moses has gone for 40 years. He comes back, and as he comes back, he says, the God of our fathers appeared to me. And they will say, what's his name? Well, now Moses has an answer. I am. And then they will say, we don't believe you. Can you imagine the conversation where Moses says, God appeared to me, and, you, and they say, no, he didn't. And Moses says, yes, he did. And they say, no, he didn't. That's Moses' concern. If I go down there and they don't believe me, what then? God has an answer. Beginning in verse number 2, the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? He said, a staff, a rod. Then he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Wouldn't you? The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand, grab it by the tail. He stretched out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand. You will see this again in verse number 6. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again. And when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And then God will give him a third sign. Take some water, pour it on the land. It'll become blood. What are the signs for? God says the signs are to answer your concern. Moses says they won't believe me. God gives him these signs. Why the signs? Look at verse 5. Why the sign? That they may believe. That the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto you. Please note, the signs are not simply to demonstrate how great God is. The sign is not simply to demonstrate that our God can do things your God can't do. That's not the purpose. In fact, he says it again. Look at verse number 8. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, that they may believe the witness of the second sign or the last sign. And then again in verse number 9, if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say unto them, then you shall take some water. That's the purpose of the third sign. Each time that they may believe, that they may believe, that they may believe. May believe what? That I appear to you. If they believe that God appeared to Moses, then they will believe that what Moses says came from God. That's the purpose of the sign. The sign is to give validation to the speaker that indeed what he says is God's word. It has God's power behind it. If Moses went back by himself, they won't believe me. But show them the signs that they may believe. Believe what? That I appear to you. So when they believe that, what you say next, they'll believe that. That's the purpose of the signs. When you and I read through the Bible, there won't be much deviation from that. In the New Testament, you're going to have similar situations. Our Lord and our Savior came to earth, and among the things he says is, I'm God. Well, should people just believe that? No, he had signs. And in John chapter 9, it's just one demonstration of that very point being made in a book, the book of John, designed for that very purpose. John says, truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and you should read all the way through the chapter and listen to them grapple with that. 
The man was blind, and now he sees something. How did that happen? And so they ask him, and he says, he healed me. They take that information, and they run it to the Pharisees. When the Pharisees hear it, they call that man in. How are you seeing? And he says, I told you, he healed me. To which they say, we know he's a sinner. Give glory to God. Then they say, ask his parents. His parents come in and they say, is this your son who you say was born blind? They say, yes, this is our, our son. And yes, he was born blind. How he sees, we do not know. Why are they concerned about that? Because the Jews had already agreed that if you confess that he was the Christ, you would be put out of the synagogue. And fearing that, his parents said, ask him, he's of age. They went back to him, asked him again. Down in verse number 25 of John chapter 9, the man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. You got to come up with some explanation of that. What are you going to say about it? You can call him a sinner if you want to, but the facts are here. I can now see. This went back and forth, and they said to him, what did he do? He said, I told you. Verse 27, he said, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you not want to hear it again? He says, you do not want to become his disciple. Ooh, did he get him with that one? He said, you don't want to be his disciple too. Listen to their answer. The Bible has a way of, of, of making it necessary for you to understand what's inside of the words. Like, it won't go into a lengthy discussion of what they said. It'll just say this in verse 28. They reviled him. Now, how much language is inside of reviled him? I'm they were not happy with, are you want to be his disciple? They reviled him. And then they said to him, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Listen to their proof. We know that God has spoken to Moses. Let me ask you this. Was any of them there? Who's out there at that bush burning but not consumed? Just Moses. Moses has to take a message back to the people. What's his proof? Signs. That they may believe, that they may believe, that believe. Let me ask you this. What did Jesus just do? A sign. Now you say, we know God spoke by Moses. But as for this man... We do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Jesus' proof of his divine nature was the very signs, and the signs were for belief. You know this won't end because the apostles now, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he didn't appear to everybody. He appeared to them. He spent 40 days with them, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom. And now they have to take a message to the world. What are they going to use? Signs. How does the church begin? The Holy Spirit comes, and they speak with tongues. And people gather around, and they say, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. But this is that which the prophet Joel spoke, this is that very thing. And then they quote Joel 2, 28 to 32, down to Acts 2 and about verse 21. And then they talk about Jesus, and they say of Jesus, he did signs and miracles in your presence, which you knew. And then they say in verse 33, God has set forth this, which you now see and hear. The signs were for those to be convinced that the speaker was from God. Now, you and I don't have signs today. What do we have? We have the completed work of those signs. We have the Word of God. And Paul would say, if any man preach any other gospel, what would we do? We'd measure it by the Word. If he says more than what God says, he said too much. If he doesn't say, he says less than what God said, he hadn't said enough. Amen. 
If he says exactly what God says, well, then we already got it. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Moses had yet one more concern, and that's chapter 4 and verse number 10. Moses says, after all of this with God, Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And God said to Moses, I didn't know that. <laughs> no. Verse number 11 is the Lord's response to that. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Verse number 12, God's assurance. Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Moses countered yet again, verse 13, Send someone else. Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will choose. That's an interesting way of saying that because God has already chosen. Surely Moses must know that's exactly what he's done is he's found the person he's chosen. Some renderings actually have the verse reading, please send someone else. And now God is angry. That's verse 14. Verse 14 says, Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. But it's interesting, that anger of the Lord in verse 14 didn't destroy Moses. That anger of the Lord didn't approve of Moses' responses. That anger of the Lord didn't dismiss Moses. What that anger of the Lord did do was provide someone else to help Moses. The rest of that verse says, is there not your brother Aaron? The Levite, I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, when he is coming out to meet you, when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Oh, I don't know if providentially God already had Aaron walking. What I do know is God has a solution to Moses' concerns. I can't speak well. I know a guy. I know somebody who can, Moses. Isn't that your brother Aaron? He's on his way. And he is going to speak. Verse 15, 16, and 17, God says, Aaron will be your mouthpiece. I know he can speak well. You know, if we were summarizing Moses' concerns, we might say among them is, number one, I'm insignificant. Who am I? Number two might be understood as, I don't know enough. Who are you? Number three might sound something like this, I'm not capable enough. They won't believe me. And number four might be, I'm not a good communicator. I can't speak well. What are some lessons we can learn? What are some lessons God's people today can learn from God's people of old and God's interaction with Moses here? Among them would be these. Number one, God keeps his promises. If God said it, he will do it. If God said it, he can do it. The Bible reveals God's keeping a promise. That's really what you're reading. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes promises to Abraham, and the rest of the way, God keeps his promise. That's what you're reading. Through all the Old Testament, through all of the sin in the world, through all the rebellion of his people, God keeps his promise. Amen. Number two, God is mindful of his people. God is watching over them. You know who would have been receiving the encouragement of these words in the first century? The church would have been relying on these words to bless their lives. The apostles in their struggle would have been telling them the passage we read like Hebrews 11, the passage we read like James chapter 5, take my brethren, the prophets. The Old Testament saints would have been a great source of help to tell the people in the first century, 
God is mindful of his people. He sees what Rome is doing. He sees what the Jews are doing to you. He sees that like he saw Pharaoh. Amen. What are you and I to take from that? He saw what Pharaoh was doing to Egypt or to the Israelites in Egypt. He saw what the Jews and the Romans were doing in the first century. What do you suppose he sees today? Amen. God is watching over him. He sees the suffering of his people. He is with them. Number three, God's purposes will come to pass. This plan was from eternity. It won't fail. The promises made are the promises kept. God's people, these, this very nation is going to be the people to bring the Messiah into the world. When we open up the New Testament, the first verse that we will run into will reference us back here. Matthew 1 and verse 1 says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. God's purposes will come to pass. Christ would fulfill. Christ is our seed. Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all are become new. But all things are of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ Amen. gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Number four, God delivers, but he uses humans to carry out his will. You know, as you're reading the Bible, these people are real. These events were real. They happened, and they happened for them in real time. One day, Moses was out tending sheep, and he turned and he saw a bush that was burning but not consumed. He drew closer to it, and a voice came out, put off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. And then that voice said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and I've come to deliver them. I can only imagine Moses saying, thank you. We have been waiting. We have been praying. We are so grateful. Thank you for coming to deliver. And then the next verse. Now, therefore, go, I'll send you. And maybe the next words were, were what? <laughs> because I thought you were coming. I am. And I'm going to use you to help me. God delivers, but he uses his people. What is Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and Rebecca, and Jacob but people? Rachel, and Leah, and Joseph, and Moses, and Aaron, and Miriam, and Samuel, and David, Paul, and Peter, and James, and John. What are they but people? Well, what about today? Nothing has changed. God delivers, but he uses his people. In fact, if you have your Bibles and you look at Philippians 1 and verse number 1, I'll show you God's entire team, all the people that God uses in one verse. Philippians 1 and verse number 1, the Apostle Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bond service of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. That's all of it. All the saints, that would be us. All of the overseers, elders. The deacons, deacons. Members, saints. That's the whole team. Somebody said, well, Eric, he left you out. Preachers. Nope, we're saints. We're in. That's the whole team. Friends, how is God's work going to get done? God will deliver, but he uses humans. He uses his people to further his cause. Number five, God equips his people. You know Moses' concerns were met. Other than that last one, there was no anger. Everything Moses came up with, God had an answer. Nothing much has changed. There is nothing God has called us to do that he hasn't equipped us to do. There is nothing that God has called us to be that he hasn't equipped us to become. What has he given us? He's given us Scripture. 
all scriptures inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for instruction and correction, for in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped unto how many good works? Unto every good work. There is no good work that God has called his people to do that scripture won't equip and enable them to do. God equips his people. But not only that, he's given us Christ's example. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mind. He's given us his church, his people, the influence of faithfulness and other people to help each other. Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens. Who's going to help the church? The church. Who's going to help the weak? The church. Who's going to hold each other up? The church. When times get hard, who are we going to turn? The church. What's it there for? God has equipped us to help each other, to bear each other's loads, to love and stir one another up, provoke unto good works. What about prayer? He's given us that. 1 John 5, 11 through 13, this is the confidence that we have that if we ask anything according to his will, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, we have our petition of him. That's the confidence we have. Luke 18, 1, men are always to pray and not to faint. James 5, 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We'll pray for one another? Absolutely. Brethren, pray for us. There are some kind words that people say to me. I hope they're saying the same to you. And it's not good sermon. No, that's kind. I appreciate it. But listen, when they say, I'm praying for you, oh, thank you. Oh, if there's moments in somebody's lives where they have you on their hearts and minds and you are before God, thank you. Who will you pray for this week? Who will you lift up to the Father this week? What member needs your prayers? God equips his people. Every concern Moses had, God provided. He's given us the ability to grow, to mature, to become, to be just like him. Ephesians 4.32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Number six, God is with his people. He says, I will be with you. That's the comfort. I am with you. I am with you. That is the comfort. Nothing has changed. Number seven, there is nothing or no one we should fear more than we should find strength with God being with us. There's no enemy that can defeat God. Pharaoh never stood a chance. Paul says there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Number eight, with God, all of our pain and adversity is simply a prelude to triumph. The reality is, no matter what we're going through, God can help us through it. Chapter 2 and verse 25, to Moses, God says, when you have. When you have brought them out, when you do that. Chapter 3, he says, I see the affliction. He says, I've come down to deliver. Let me ask you this. When Jesus came down, did he deliver? God is saying in Jesus, I have come down to deliver. His word delivers from ignorance. His example delivers a pattern of behavior. His mind delivers from anxiety to peace. His word delivers comfort to hurt and to pain. No matter what bondage the world tries to put his children in, God has delivered. If you will remain with him, he will see you through. I will be with you. This is the sign to you when you have brought the people out. When you go through this, that's what he would say to us. When you go through this, when you overcome this, when you persevere through this, someone might say, well, Eric, what's the sign? I would suggest to you he's already given it to you. Do you remember the last time 
do you remember? Can you remember in your mind the last time the world was trying you? You remember the last time they were stressing you? You remember the last time your life was on fire? At least that's certainly what it felt like in your mind, and the feeling was real. And you were worrying and agitated, and people were out to get you, and they were trying to hurt. Do you remember that? Let me ask you this. Do you remember how you overcame it? You remember what got you through it? Do you remember what you were delivered by? It was God. It was Christ. It was the Spirit. It was the Scripture. It was the church. It was prayer. What's God saying this time? When you come out. When you come out. Part of the reason to worship God is His personal care, His perpetual presence, his powerful promises, and his present deliverance. We worship God because he has delivered. In fact, we use past deliverances for comfort in the present distress. And we use that as an as a assurance of future victory. What do we know for sure we're going to get through this? How do you know that we've already gotten through? Over and over and over and over again, he has seen us through. And so when the next one comes up, what do we know? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. To Joshua, he will say, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. There's a saying in the stock market it goes something like um, past performances is not indicative of future outcome or something to that effect. And what they're trying to warn you about is don't look at the, at the past and project forward as if we can guarantee this is how that's going to work out. In fact, they caution you. You know you could lose money. You know with God it's the exact opposite. With God, it's the exact opposite. Because what God would have you do is look at my past performances and use them as assurance of future victories. That is exactly the way God does it. Friends, it might be the case this morning that you're not a child of God. And if that is the case, friends, you need to be. You need this God need to give your life to him. You need to give your service to him. He's not like the idols. There is no God like God, and he will have a people unlike any other people. Won't you become one of them? By believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, by repenting and changing your mind, confessing the name of Jesus, being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've never done that, you need to. If you are his child and you've lived in a way that's not pleasing to him, please come home. Make things right with God and serve and give your life to this God. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.